heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And if anyone should slap you on your right cheek, turn and give him the other one also. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. A little over 12 years ago, we had a sermon series called the Sermon on the Mount. And over this past fall, several of you who were here at that time, and at that time our church family was a lot smaller, kind of one service, you began asking, can we do that again? And I never like to like repeat myself, and then I'm like, my whole life is repeating myself. Uh, because no one, no one gets it the first time through. Like, I don't get something the first time through. And as I asked people kind of why they wanted to go back and revisit this, um, it comes from a heart where many of you, and I'm, I'm in this group, where we live in an incredibly complex, complicated moment in time, and trying to figure out what does the Christ life look like in the middle of that, for many of us, is deeply, deeply important and, and, and invaluable. So this is a, a, another run through an incredible sermon that Jesus gave early in his ministry that we're going to spend some time through between now and just past Easter time, working this through. On a very personal level, I wish that I knew what this sermon really was uh, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. It would have saved my life an awful lot of grief. It would have equipped me far better for my life when I was early 20s getting married because um, there were things in my heart that I did not have the ability to even understand or a deal with. I knew a lot in my head growing up in the church. I had colored a lot of Sunday school pictures when I was a kid, but then you get older and you're like, wait a minute, something's missing here. And the Sermon on the Mount would have just saved mountains of brokenness and frustration. And I'm hoping that as we work through this together, this might be your experience as you hear what Jesus would say to your life in the middle of this incredible sermon. And I'm not one to rate like this passage is better than another one, but if I were, I would say that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 would be just behind 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I do think is the most important chapter in the whole of Scripture. And close second to that is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the largest collection or the densest collection of what Jesus has said about life and living where he is Lord and what that looks like in our lives as we follow him. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I would say you should know this passage, these passages, far better than some of the verses that we memorized when we were kids. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're like, I'm just trying to figure out my life. I'm just trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. And I would say these three chapters are a significant window for you into this whole life of faith, this whole thing called Christianity, this whole thing of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So with that being said, um, let's just begin with a, a word of prayer. Would you, would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your words to us. 
and we get to see your words in print when we read the scriptures themselves. And God, it's my prayer, it's our collective prayer as we work our way through these three incredible chapters that we would see ourselves in the story, but more importantly, see you over us in the story and what you have done, what you have invited us into, and who can participate. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. In your name we ask, amen. Um, if you have a Bible, like a real one, like a paper one, we would invite you to open to 5, Matthew chapter 5. If you have a fake one that's on your phone, um, and I have a fake one just so you know, but you can open to 5 because we're going to be reading it through a lot together. Um, and before we read it, there's some context that I want to um, help you kind of see and understand. Because the first few verses of Matthew chapter 5 are perhaps some of the most misunderstood uh, they can be incredibly problematic. They can be deeply confusing. And as a pastor who kind of has grown up in this, they are always misquoted. And they're often misquoted at like the worst times. So give an example. Um, you're, you're at a funeral and someone is deeply mourning. And you're like, well, blessed are those who mourn. And you're like, not helpful. Not helpful right now. So, and we take things and we, and we think that it's spiritual, but it's really spiritually dumb and often insensitive uh, when we use them. So um, let's read together Matthew 5. It's on the screen. Pick it up at verse 3. This is the, the text called the Beatitudes, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Continues on, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Continues on, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. For simplicity's sake, there are ultimately two ways we can read this passage of Scripture. And the first way that we often do, and I have been guilty of this in my own life, is that, is that we read this incredibly the wrong way. We read this as though this is a list of attitudes or a list of virtues that a Christ follower should have or we are working away at becoming one of these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There seems to be a blessing linked to an action or a behavior or a posture. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Uh, and so we read it. And sometimes I, I feel for us as the reader, because sometimes the very translation that you have actually perpetuates a, a, an inaccurate way we read it. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to throw this particular translation under the bus, but they do do a poor job at unpacking it. And, and, and there's a translation, the, NL, the NLT, where it reads that God blesses those who mourn. God blesses those who are poor in spirit. God blesses those who. And it very much reads as though God's blessing on my life is linked to one of these things, and if I can get to one of these things, then something will follow. Mercy, 
his kingdom, riches, whatever the case might be. A good Christian, so often we read this text as though they are the attitudes, hence be attitudes, that I am working away on, that I am becoming. Because if I can get to this point, then there's some kind of great blessing that I receive from the Lord. And, and this is where it gets very weird. If you believe that you can somehow arm wrestle from God a blessing based on your behavior, you are in a lot of trouble. In a lot of trouble. I am so thankful that God doesn't deal with me based on my behavior. Because even if there was a scenario that somehow I fooled him in thinking that I was good and I got a blessing, there are way too many days where I'm awful. And if it's going to go one way, then it's going to go the other way, and it would not end well for me if that's how God interacted with us. We do not read the scriptures where you are the focal point, and herein lies the biggest issue of it all. The Beatitudes have nothing to do with an attitude or with me behaving properly. And this is where we want to read it rightly. In order for us to handle any text of Scripture well, we have to understand, and this is like a big fancy word, the meta-narrative or the big giant picture. All through the Scriptures, whether it's Genesis 1 or all the way to the end of Revelation, there's a big overarching story that's there from beginning to end. It's the meta-narrative the big story of God. And the big story of God is about God, who is at work redeeming all things through his son, Jesus Christ. The meta-narrative of the scriptures, or the story of God, is not Phil. It's not you. And if you place yourself in the main part of the story, how you read the text will be awful. I'll give you a very clear example. I grew up um, Sunday school, all of that, well-intended people, and we would go through like the story of David and Goliath. Like, ever know that story? Just kind of raise your hands. David and Goliath goes down to the brook, fives, fine stones, are super smooth, and then he puts them in a sling and throws them, and it kills the giant. Well, I often was taught to read that as though, like, if you have the faith of David and you find some smooth stones and you throw those stones, God will ultimately remove those giants. If those giants aren't removed, you work it backwards, then somehow I don't have the kind of faith like David, ergo the problem is me. Rather than God is incredibly faithful in David's life, and this is one example of it. One example of it. It has nothing to do with that God somehow responded to David, and in this moment God honored him by slaying the giant. When you are the focal point of the story, how you read and handle the scriptures will be deeply problematic, and we should be very thankful that my life, that your life, is not the focal point of the meta-narrative of the big story of God. All the way through the Old Testament, we see this shadow picture of God at work redeeming and restoring all things. New Testament, it gets real focused because Jesus is the picture of how God is going to do all, the, all of these things. God, who he is, what he is doing in his world, is the metanar, it's the focal point of it all. And if God is about redeeming all things to himself through his son, it greatly shapes how we read Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. It moves it away from me being poor in spirit so that I can get some kind of blessing or me being this so I can get the kingdom of heaven 
or me being this so I can get, it moves it away from that. And to help us see this big giant marinette, marinette that word that I can't say right now, uh, meta-narrative, you really have to go back to Matthew chapter 4, and you begin to see a group of people that Jesus is actually addressing in Matthew chapter 5. So it's on the screen. You can kind of follow along with me. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing of every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and began to teach them. I want to paint a picture of this moment in Jesus' ministry for you to, to, to grasp. Jesus has started his earthly ministry somewhere around 29, 30 years old. He's fresh off the 40 days in the desert where he's tempted by the evil one. He begins to say this phrase out loud of repent, the kingdom of God has come near. He has called his first few disciples. Not all 12 are on board yet. There's just a couple of them that have responded to his invitation of come follow me. And Jesus is causing a bit of a stir in and around his neighborhoods going through Galilee, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. As he's healing the sick, news is spreading all over Syria and these regions. And this large crowd of people, and this crowd ultimately is like this giant group of outcasts and misfits, and they start following him. And it sets the stage of this grand story of God redeeming all things to himself through his son, and this is a small little picture of that unfolding in the world. Jesus sees this massive crowd. There's something wrong with all of them in the crowd, and he begins to heal and restore them to life. This crowd of outcasts, the marginalized, the broken, Jesus begins to say and preach to them, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to the very people in the crowd who are poor, who are oppressed, who are the needy, who are the lowly. And the focus is not on them, it's on a God who has come to meet them where they're at and have compassion towards them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He's talking to the people in the crowd whose hearts are absolutely broken. The focus is not on that person. It's on the God who has come to comfort and heal them for the first time in their lives. Blessed are the meek and humble, for they will inherit the earth. He's talking to the people who in that crowd, who their entire life, they've been nothing more than a doormat for everybody else in their life. Walked over, ignored, completely ostracized by others, and God is saying for the first time in your life, I'm offering something to you that you've never been offered before in your life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There are lots of people, particularly in our climate right now, who hunger and thirst for justice. And if Jesus, he would say the same thing. For those of you that hunger for justice, the issue is not on the one who longs for justice, it's on the one who actually brings justice, Jesus himself. 
And so the Beatitudes unfold. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I need you to see and feel this significant moment that this is in Jesus' ministry. Up till now, lots of people in the first century, in and around Jerusalem, believed that if you were sick, if you were poor, if there was an ailment on your life in some capacity or another, they believed quietly that you deserve this because you did something wrong in your life and this was God's judgment on it. We see this attitude in the story when the little blind boy is brought before Jesus from the Pharisees and they ask, this boy's blind. Why is he blind? Because the boy made a mistake or because his parents made a mistake? And Jesus answers, well, neither of those things are true. He's blind because for right now I'm going to reveal the glory of my father and he heals this boy. But we, they, believe this and to a certain degree we kind of believe this too. If you golf at all, this is kind of the silly ways where this gets played out. On the tee box, you hit a good or a bad tee shot. It goes way right. It hits a tree. And by some miracle, it reflects rightly off the tree and comes back out on the fairway. And some guy in your group's like, must be living right. As though somehow God's like, that guy said grace this morning. I'm going to make sure his tee shot's good. Like, and it brings it back. Like, it's weird how we do this. I remember a couple years ago, uh, you will not be named, but you'll know who you are. You opted not to come to church on a Sunday morning because it was a beautiful day, and you had a flat tire that day, and you're like, I knew it. God saw me skip church, and I have a flat tire, as though somehow that's what he does, as though somehow he's like watching over us, and it's like somehow we get like this pez dispenser of like goodness if we do it right, or leprosy if we do it wrong. It's just weird. And so many of us, even if we don't believe in God, that's sometimes how we, like we're very Greek in our thinking when it comes to deities and mythology. So you have this massive crowd who have been told at some level that you are the way you are because God is the one behind it all because of your sin in your life. And they are listening to Jesus say to them, the relationship that you have been denied your whole life for all these years that you believe that somehow God doesn't see you because of the faults in your life, it's accessible to you. These are the people that were never allowed to worship in the temple. They were never allowed to actually have a relationship with the living God. And Jesus is standing before them saying, it's not true. Everything that my Father has is for you. And for the first time in your life, it's accessible to you because of who I am. And listen, this has always been God's message. We are the ones that create stupid rules around it to keep people from experiencing the life that we have in the Father through the Son. I grew up in church. I understand the stupidness that we create purposefully to keep bad people out and welcome people who look just like us. You'll find upstanding taxpayers who might tell a white lie every now and again. And if that's the way you view yourself, you've never truly come to understand the goodness and greatness of God over your life, which is deeply marred and deeply broken and deeply sinful. 
and he welcomes you in anyway. This is this moment for this crowd. And if there was anyone in the crowd that had any memory of like the Old Testament prophets, they might hear Isaiah 61 woven into this moment where Jesus, if you are this, blessed are you, if you mourn, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Isaiah 61 reads this. The Lord has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. This is Isaiah talking about there is a day coming where someone will come, someone will arrive, and they will proclaim good news to the poor, the ones who are never allowed to participate, for the ones who are grieving in Zion. There will be someone who comforts and invites you in, and Jesus now, at the beginning of his ministry, is the one saying, blessed are you if, not because of who you are in your space, but because of who I am I am going to bring you and welcome you into Zion full stop because of who I am. Blessed are you because I am now here. And you are welcome to participate in all that I have provided for you as people. Here's a modern day parallel. And I want you to get out of the first century and come to the 24th century. If Christ began his earthly ministry this afternoon, according to Matthew 4 and 5, it would look like this, kind of. He would probably start somewhere downtown. Soup kitchen, a community outreach center, an AA group, an SA group, or a host of other groups. He would probably find himself in the most densely populated place of brokenness. A place where poverty reigns. A place where heartache and pain is kind of normal a place where the rejected folks get together, a place where the hopeless gather, a place where the doormats gather, a place where the social outcasts gather, a place where the lonely get together, a place where you might gather from Monday to Saturday. The list given in Matthew chapter 5, it truly does capture everybody. Everyone who has had their life turned upside down on them Everyone who might think that you've got the raw end of the deal as it relates to life, and you look around at everybody else, and you're like, man, when I was seven and I painted a picture of what my life was going to look like, this isn't it. We walk around with this giant chip on our shoulder, and we're deeply frustrated, and we're angry at the world, and we try to hide that anger, and yet we know that we are always on the outside looking in. This might include a husband or a wife who has lost their spouse of many years and they long for companionship. This might include a spouse who's discovered that their partner has cheated on them. And to trust again, super hard. It might include the teenage girl who doesn't quite fit the mold of what beauty is. And they're made fun of all the time. It might include parents who raise their kids in the church and their children have turned away from God. It includes a divorced person who lives daily with loss and frustration around all that's unfolded and what continues to unfold. It includes the prostitute 
who in some cases, the only thing that they have to offer the world to survive is their physical body. It includes people who are down and out. It includes everyone who believes that somehow they are outside of God's blessing. It includes everyone who doesn't believe there's a God. Because if there is a God, where is he? Because this world's tough and evil is everywhere. And for no reason at all, Jesus arrives at this group of people and simply out of love for them, he begins to heal them. He begins to restore them one at a time. He begins to tell them about a kingdom of heaven that's come near to them. This news would spread. CBC would be there. They would not know what to do with this story. They would know that it's exciting and amazing, but then they would discover that Jesus is present. They'd be like, oh, I don't know what to say here now. The crowds would grow. People from Summerside would travel down to Charlottetown. People from Alberton would drive through Tyne Valley for whatever reason, pick up people in Tyne Valley, They'd bring them there. I try to work in Tyne Valley as much as I can because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> the excitement would be palpable. Jesus would preach to everyone in the room. And he would say to them, Blessed are you, not because you're you. Blessed are you because I'm the Lord, and I've come for you, and in me there's life. I can fix, I can heal, I can restore, I can redeem all the parts of your life that are broken and lost, irredeemable, all the things that you think make you unworthy. Blessed are you because I have come for you. On one condition, on one condition, it requires that you follow me. You cannot have two masters. It cannot be you, and it cannot be me. You have to follow me. You have to trust me. This is Matthew 4, the beginning of all these amazing things that Jesus is doing with this crowd. He tells them, repent, which is essentially a fancy word for stop doing what you're doing and turn around and go the other way. If you're headed in this direction, Repent from that and go this way. And this way is defined by Christ himself. You must follow me. If you're going to participate in the blessing I have to offer, you must stop doing life the way you think life should be done, and you have to learn from who he is. And you can go on all like, for I am gentle and humble in heart. That the yoke of the world is heavy, but my yoke is easy and light. And there's so many pictures of Jesus saying the same thing through so many different conversations. But this blessing that he brings to this crowd is linked to us following him. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. There's a shift in the language where there's this big, massive crowd that Jesus is addressing. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And then he focuses attention to like a couple, and sorry that you're right here. It'd be like, this is the massive crowd, and then right here would be the disciples. Blessed are you, for I've come for you. And blessed are you, because when you follow me, people are going to hate you. And they're going to find it really hard to be around you. And goodness is going to walk with you as you follow me in the middle of all of that persecution. There's this incredible two layers of blessed are you, for I have come for you. And blessed are these few disciples who have already decided to follow him. Because this is going to kind of be the life that follows you as you follow the Lord. 
when you read through Matthew 5, through this meta-narrative of this invitation in, it confronts us in a couple ways. One, and this is the obvious one, the invitation into the kingdom of God still stands. This incredible posture of God towards the world still stands. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is available to you in its life and its life to its full, its eternal life that begins now, its salvation in every sense of what that word means, and it is available to you. Jesus is continually reaching out to you to heal, to restore, to bless, to make you whole. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter whatever resume you have amassed for yourself, you have access to the kingdom of God because of who Jesus is, and he invites you in. Blessed are we. On the condition that we respond and follow. On the condition that we respond and follow. The invitation into the kingdom of God still stands. This incredible moment, Matthew 4 and 5, this invitation given then continues to stand now, and this is now to the group who've already decided to follow Jesus. So this is the second part. If you are already participating in the kingdom, we welcome all into it. We welcome all into it. And this is kind of like going deep back into my church background. There's this weird... I know what I should say and how I should live, but I don't kind of actually live that way in church people. And Jesus addresses this issue all the time. So if you're kind of a long-standing churchgoer, you kind of might be in this category because I, I know that there's times where I can still be in that category. If you've made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, his posture towards me and welcoming me in shapes my posture toward you and welcoming you in no matter where and who and what you are. And church folks, we have this, I'm not an islander, so I'm going to say this and I'll deal with the consequences later. We love seeing you in the summer, but we can't wait to see you leave in the fall. We love to see people come into church and then it's like, oh, you live like this. Oh, you're living with someone outside of marriage. And then that same people will come to me like, do you know they're living together? I'm like, yeah. Well, they're probably having sex. I'm like, probably. You should talk to them. Why? Why? Well, because that's not, you know, that's not what, and I love that moment when I'll ask you why, and then you're like, I got to go. <laughs> I got to go. It gets funny for me, because I'm like, I know, I know you, and that might not be your thing, but I know this is your thing. And you're still here, and we still welcome you. We'll still celebrate you. Church folks are notoriously good at come on in. And you're like, oh, we not quite, hmm, not quite there. Not quite there. And in some churches, and I grew up in one of these ones, where, oh, sorry, I visited this one often on vacation, during places where it's like, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can leave now. And now we're really going to get on with stuff. Like moments where people were asked to leave if they didn't know the Lord. Special chairs and seats for them to sit in if they don't know the Lord. Very weird. If this posture of God welcoming in is true in my life, then I will welcome in whoever. Because where I am now, 
at 45 is completely different from where I was when I was nine. And I'm so grateful that some in my life trusted the Spirit's work to convict and shape and move versus those church people that were super judgmental and super hard on me and others that were more of like a repellent and very difficult to be around. This posture of welcoming people in ought to shape your life in every way if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite Dana and team back. They're going to lead a song in a moment. When we understand this broad invitation that Jesus still has for people, it shapes me, a disciple of Jesus Christ, in incredible ways. And it should shape you in incredible ways. In your personal life, I would ask you, and, and I'm, I'm serious when I ask this, who in your life do you welcome in when you know they are your enemy? That you find it hard to be around them? Family member, friend, co-worker? Do you have a posture of invitation to these ones who it's like sandpaper in your soul and you move to the other side of the street if you see them, you'd sooner not follow them on social media. It's just that person that's hard to invite in. Who in your life is someone that just lives so different than you? So different than you. And you know what you should say because you've read enough of the Bible and you know enough about God that you're like, well, this is the right answer on a test, but my daily life doesn't reflect the answer on the test. Do you welcome people in? On a church level, tell me how funny this would be as, as we do kits of kindness ministry. These are bags of food that we put together and we send to schools to put in the backpacks of children who come from homes where there's very little food. Imagine what kind of ministry that would be. It's like, tell me about your home. They tell you about your home, you're like, oh, you don't get one of these. Your home's too broken. That ministry doesn't go very far. Imagine the beautiful you dress that, that we give away prom dresses in the spring to girls who can't afford them. Imagine girls arrive, welcome, welcome, welcome. We want to write down, oh, no dress for you. No dress for you. Imagine community care. We take offering, come alongside those who are in spaces of need. Let me interview you before I can give this away. You're like, oh, sorry. Like, it just gets so weird. And it's ugly. And yet, this marks church life and history and people. Jesus arrives to a group of people who have forever been a castaway, who forever have been so told, you can't come here. And he arrives and says, blessed are you, because I'm here now. And all those voices that told you this stuff, don't believe them. Blessed are you. And all that I am, all that I will do, all that I will accomplish, you can participate in it. But you have to trust me. You have to follow me. This is the beginning of the greatest sermon ever where Jesus has gathered all of these people through Syria, the Decapolis, Judea, Jerusalem, all the outcasts, all the misfits, and a few disciples. He says,
for the first time in your life, you are blessed because I'm here now. Don't listen to any other voice but mine for my people. You welcome them in. And it's going to be hard. People are going to leave you. They're going to mock you. It's going to be difficult for you. And then we walk into this beautiful sermon of life Jesus' way, where he is glorified, our lives are restored, all for the goodness and glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, I am blessed, we are blessed, this city is blessed by you, not because of anything that we are at all, but simply because you have come into the world to seek and save those who are lost and broken. And the invitation still stands. Follow me. Repent for the kingdom of God has come. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. All of you can follow me. You're welcome, you're welcome, you're welcome in, you're welcome in. May that voice and invitation shape us like no other voice. And for those of us who have already said yes to that invitation, may it shape our posture towards the stranger. May it shape kind of the open hands that we would have towards people who are in deep need of a Savior, whom we know, that we would love to get to know and trust the Lord via His Spirit to do all the forming work in anyone's life. We just encourage and pray with them all along the way. May you shape us as your people. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.